science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium. Well, welcome aboard! And a very happy Mother's Day to all the mothers uh, out there. And the weather is looking quite nice, so uh, go out for a stroll and uh, and celebrate. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. And uh, our task is to separate sense from nonsense. And uh, we do that in many ways on our website and public lectures, uh, on the uh, Internet, uh, with uh, uh, Facebook, and uh, certainly uh, also, not the least, uh, with you guys here every Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. A lot to talk about today, uh, but first let me throw out a couple of questions so that you can uh, start thinking about uh, the answers. As you know, in India now, there's a, a drastic shortage of oxygen. And this is critical because uh, obviously it is used in treatment of, uh, of COVID-19. So my first question relates to that. How is this oxygen that is used in hospitals that uh, turns up in the cylinders, how is it actually produced? Second question. Who was the skeptical chemist? I'm not pronouncing that. It actually is spelled C-H-Y-M-I-S-T, the skeptical chemist, who was, in fact, the father of chemistry. Who are we talking about? Okay, well, let's get down to some uh, other uh, interesting stuff. And uh, this morning on the trivia show, I asked a question. I asked you to identify a tree. Uh, which could be recognized by the shape of its leaves, which look like the feet of a duck. And uh, I'm very uh, much attached to ducks uh, because I collect them, uh, ducks of all kinds, because I like to be reminded of the need to constantly battle quackery. And when I look around my office and I see the 250 or so ducks sitting around me, uh, of course, I am stimulated by, by them to make sure that we are always supporting the quest for critical thinking. So anyway, uh, the tree that I was looking for, the leaves of which are extracted in order to also produce dietary supplements, uh, is the ginkgo biloba tree. And what an interesting tree it is. Not only is it very pretty, uh, produces uh, golden yellow leaves in, in the fall, but the female version of the tree, and yes, uh, trees can come in male and, and female versions, the female of, uh, of the tree produces these fleshy pods, also called cones, and these surround the nut. And uh, therein lies an interesting story. Because should you step on these uh, fleshy pods, an incredible smell is released, and one that you're not going to soon forget. 
uh, they reek. It's uh, sort of a mix of vomit, sweaty gym socks, and the fragrance of an outhouse. It is a pretty repugnant kind of a, of a smell. Uh, most of the smell is due to a substance called butyric acid. The trees are really, really interesting. And uh, botanists called the ginkgo a living fossil because they have been known to be around for some 200 million years. I think they know that through radiocarbon dating. The tree is extremely hardy and uh, it demonstrated its strength of survival in the 19th century London. Uh, and uh, in those days, because of the Industrial Revolution, of course, uh, smoke was spewed out from chimneys. There was smog in the city and people choked, trees withered, but the ginkgo tree was unharmed. Even more impressive than that was the survival of a number of ginkgos in Hiroshima after the city was essentially destroyed by the atom bomb in 1945. Number of trees, six actually, near the uh, center of the explosion, near the ground zero, actually survived and are still alive and can be seen to this day in Hiroshima. So uh, it's little wonder that many cities have taken to planting ginkgo trees on city streets, especially downtown, where other trees have a life expectancy of only a few decades, because they succumb, of course, to, to, uh, to pollution. The exhaust of uh, automobiles, uh, of course, being a prime uh, culprit. But there's a price to pay for seeing all this greenery on our city streets. And you can see them, you see them in Montreal. Right beside McGill on McTavish Street, we have a large number of ginkgo trees. Anyway, the penalty that we pay for the greenery is the putrid smell in the fall when the trees drop their cones that inevitably get crushed. So what do you do? In Seoul, Korea, where they have a lot of ginkgo trees, the city battles the scent by actually employing workers to hand-pick the uh, cones before they ripen and fall to the ground. In the U.S., some cities have taken to spraying the trees in the spring with uh, chloroprofam, and that's a herbicide that is commonly used to keep potatoes from sprouting, and in this case, it halts the development of these fleshy pods. It's not a perfect solution because if there's rain, just after the application, the chemical, of course, gets washed away. Some cities say, well, let's not plant uh, female trees. Let's plant only male trees. And uh, you can, in the nursery, actually tell the difference between a male tree and a female tree. Just have to look under the clothes. And uh, that is not a solution either. Because it turns out that ginkgos are really quite remarkable trees they can spontaneously change sex as an evolutionary adaptation. Anyway, butyric acid is one of the most obnoxious smells that one can encounter. And you do not have to be stepping on ginkgo pots to be uh, exposed to it. If you ever smelled rancid butter, then you know what I'm talking about, or sweaty socks. Uh, so in, in butter, the fats, the polyunsaturated fats, react with oxygen in the air, and they break down. And one of the breakdown products is butyric acid. Uh, in fact, the name of that chemical is derived from the ancient Greek for butter. 
the compound is also produced along with other delightful compounds like dimethyl disulfide, dimethyl trisulfide, which conjure up the fragrance of skunk. And uh, these are produced from bacteria in the skin, feed off the fats and proteins in our sweat. So that's the dirty sock sweat. Heating and air conditioning systems can also be plagued with what has been called, believe it or not, dirty sock syndrome. That can be traced to mold and bacteria that grow when just the right conditions of moisture uh, and uh, cycles of heating and cooling in, in the system are, are met. Uh, in cars, air conditioning systems, you will have noticed that when you turn them on uh, in the spring, uh, after having used the system only for heating in the winter, uh, you get uh, this uh, obnoxious smell coming out of the vents. And uh, part of that is the butyric acid that is generated by molds that have uh, grown over, uh, over time because of the presence of moisture and just the, the right temperatures. But believe it or not, not all creatures are averse to the smell of butyric acid. Dogs are actually attracted to the smell. So are mosquitoes and bears. So you know what? It's not a good idea to wear smelly socks or, or stinky t-shirts in the woods. An imitation foot odor scent composed of ammonia, lactic acid, and fatty acids, including butyric acid, has been used to attract mosquitoes into traps. And uh, of course, the idea is to divert them from biting people. But you know what they found in these experiments? that sweaty socks actually work better. And the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, has actually funded an experiment in Kenya that involved collecting smelly socks uh, and then uh, rubbing them with cotton pads and using these as bait in mosquito traps. Now here, if you want to uh, think of something really interesting, the East African vampire spider that dines on blood-gorged mosquitoes is also attracted to butyric acid. Why? Well, this is an interesting evolutionary adaptation because the mosquitoes are attracted to the scent, so the spider has learned that where there is the odor of butyric acid in the air, there's also going to be a meal. So it goes after the smell, and there it will also find some um, uh, mosquitoes. So nature is, is really quite, uh, quite amazing. While most people are repelled by smelly socks, some experience erotic arousal from the scent. And this is a form of ol ol olfactophilia. Uh, what is that? Well, believe it or not, sexual arousal by body odor. Not surprisingly, many foot fetishists are turned on by smelly socks. Interesting stuff, right? All right, so now you know more about the ginkgo biloba tree than you ever wanted to know. Uh, let me also tell you that uh, there's no evidence that supplements of ginkgo biloba uh, have any effect on improving memory or cognition. All right, I'm waiting to hear answers to my questions about the skeptical chemist and about how oxygen is manufactured. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
Well, so far, no answer to either of my questions, but that may be my fault because I forgot to give the telephone number, which is 514-790-0800. You can also text me at 514-800. So once again, uh, we talk a lot about oxygen uh, these days because of its uh, use in the treatment of COVID and, of course, the terrible shortage of oxygen in India right now. So the question is, how is that oxygen produced? Where do they get the oxygen that goes into the cylinders? The second question I asked was, who was the skeptical chemist, C-H-Y-M-I-S-T, also known as the father of chemistry? All right, uh, as a penalty for not giving you my uh, number, I'm going to give another question. So give you a better opportunity. What machine operates without an external power source? So what machine operates without an external power source? And if you know uh, the answer to any of those questions, uh, you give us a call at uh, 514-790-0800. Okay. Keeping on with the oxygen theme, I'm going to tell you a story. And I think it's an important story because it deals with Joseph Priestley, uh, who, of course, is widely regarded, although not completely correctly, as the uh, discoverer of oxygen. So let's talk about Joseph Priestley. We're going to go back to 1767, when he was to take up his position as minister at Mill Hill Chapel in Leeds in England. But when he arrived, he discovered that the minister's house next to the chapel was not ready and that the family would have to make do with a temporary residence next to a brewery. Had it not been for this quirk of fate, the progress of chemistry could have taken a completely different route. Priestley could not help but notice the vapors given off by the brewery. He became very interested in these airs, as he called them, particularly in the one that was responsible for the bubbles in beer. This fixed air, as carbon dioxide was known at the time, seemed to be the same gas that made certain naturally occurring spring waters effervescent. Health resorts in Europe were serving such fizzy waters as supposed cures for various illnesses, and Priestley began to wonder whether or not water could somehow have an artificial fizz added to it. Joseph Black had already shown that fixed air could be produced by the action of acids on marble. So Priestley combined sulfuric acid and calcium carbonate to form carbon dioxide, although he, of course, did not recognize the gas as such. He collected the gas in a pig's bladder, because, of course, they had no balloons back then, and found a way to use it to carbonate water. He was awarded the Royal Society's prestigious Copley Medal for his publication on, quote, directions for impregnating water with fixed air. Soda water, as the fizzy stuff was called, became very popular. It was taken along on ocean voyages because it tasted better than the usual stored stagnant water. It also developed a false reputation as a preventative against scurvy, and that was actually sold in apothecary shops. But John Newth, a Scottish physician, complained that the use of a pig bladder imparted an off flavor to the water and he developed a glass apparatus for carbonating water to solve the problem. This found widespread use in shops and homes. The soda boom had begun, and, of course, it goes on to this day with the soda stream. 
Anyway, Priestley's success at carbonating water had whetted his appetite for science. A poor minister, however, could hardly afford to devote his time to the investigation of heirs. He needed a rich patron. William, the second Earl of Shelburne, had heard about Priestley's experiments and invited him to come to Bowood, about 90 miles west of London, to carry out scientific investigations under his patronage. And so it happened that on a sudden day in August 1774, perhaps the most important single experiment in the history of chemistry was performed in a laboratory on the estate of the Earl of Shelburne. Using a magnifying glass, Joseph Priestley focused the sun's rays on a sample of red calx, as he called it, mercuric oxide is what it was, and noted that an air was given off which was insoluble in water. A candle burned in a spectacular fashion when exposed to the gas, and a mouse became more vigorous when confined to a jar filled with it. Eventually, Priestley himself inhaled the gas and remarked, who can tell but that in time this pure air may become fashionable article in luxury? Hitherto only two mice and myself had had the privilege of breathing it. Little did Priestley realize that in fact he, the mice, and every living animal had always been inhaling his newly discovered gas with every breath. Joseph Priestley had isolated pure oxygen. While Priestley was a great experimentalist and observer, he was not an astute interpreter of his experiments. He never recognized oxygen for what it was. Priestley firmly believed that what he had created was deflogisticated air. At the time, the prevailing opinion was that substances that burned did so because they contained phlogiston, which was released during combustion into the air. When the air became saturated with phlogiston, it would no longer support combustion. That's why a candle burning inside a closed jar was extinguished. So it made sense to Priestley that his deflogisticated air would be able to take up more phlogiston and that his candle would burn longer and more brightly. Soon after his classic experiment, Priestley accompanied the Earl on a trip to the continent where he met Antoine Lavoisier, the noted French scientist. He carefully described his mercuric oxide experiment to Lavoisier, who not only repeated it, but interpreted it correctly. Lavoisier identified oxygen as an element and determined that air was composed of two substances, one of which supported combustion and the other did not. The latter he named azote, from the Greek for no life, which is still the French term for nitrogen. Interestingly, the Swedish chemist Carl Wilhelm Scheele had independently isolated oxygen at least a year before Priestley's discovery, but did not publish his work until 1777, whereas Priestley reported his results immediately. It sure pays to publish. For some unknown reason, Priestley had a falling out with the Earl of Shelburne and returned to his first calling as a Unitarian minister in Birmingham. This did not have a happy outcome. Priestley was a supporter of the principles of the French and American revolutions, and as a result, in 1791, a royalist mob ransacked his house and destroyed his laboratory. America might be more tolerant, Priestley thought, and pulled up his roots and moved to Northumberland in Pennsylvania, where he continued his experiments, eventually discovering and isolating carbon monoxide. Both Priestley's house in Northumberland and Bowood Mansion in England have been designated as historic landmarks by the American Chemical Society, 
which itself was first conceived at Joseph Priestley's gravesite. It was there that in 1874, 35 men gathered to commemorate the centennial of the discovery of oxygen and contemplated the notion of a national chemical society. Two years later, the idea crystallized into the formation of American Chemical Society, the largest professional organization in the world. One wonders what Priestley would have thought of the currently popular oxygenated water scams. Purifies your bloodstream, eliminates toxins, screamed the ads. Given that the solubility of oxygen is about 7.5 parts per million, a dose of this miraculous water actually has less oxygen than a single breath. Assuming that the oxygen from the beverage actually gets into the bloodstream, roughly 3 liters of water a minute would have to be consumed to increase blood oxygen by 1%. This silliness reminds me of another of Priestley's discoveries, and that was laughing gas. So now you know about the history of oxygen, and I'm waiting to get the answer to my question about uh, the skeptical chemist and oxygen production. But first, we're going to take time out and listen to the CTD News. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Upon the universe with wonder in your eyes Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier We have an interesting question that was raised uh, by text from Nick. In the film Midway, the bomber pilot needed to use his oxygen at high altitude and he complained of a bad mix when inhaling it. His lungs were later found scarred by caustic soda. Can you explain this? Well, I, I don't think it was exactly caustic soda. I mean, uh, the way that this works, in, in the case of an emergency, oxygen can be produced by the decomposition of sodium chlorate. This is actually the way that the, the oxygen masks work on commercial airliners. When you pull down that mask, it starts a chemical reaction. The mask is actually connected to a canister. That canister is filled with sodium chlorate and iron powder. And there's a percussion cap. When you pull down the mask, there's a little explosion that sets the iron filings in there uh, uh, to combust. The heat produced breaks down the sodium chlorate to release oxygen. So that's the system uh, of this oxygen generator. Now, in the case of of the Midway uh, pilot, uh, he must have had to resort to his emergency oxygen supply because these uh, oxygen canisters only last about 15 minutes. So uh, bomber pilots normally would be breathing oxygen from an oxygen cylinder. But if there was a problem, they would then resort to the emergency system. Uh, sodium chlorate is very, very caustic. And uh, indeed, if, it, if the system isn't working properly, some of the sodium chlorate will come through with the oxygen. And that can certainly burn your uh, esophagus and, and your lungs. Uh, but it isn't caustic soda. Caustic soda is sodium hydroxide. And... Uh, Although I suppose that sodium chlorate with enough moisture might release some sodium hydroxide, so that's that's possible. Anyway, it would not be a good idea to breathe in sodium chlorate anyway. 
All right, so there, there it is, uh, the mystery of the Midway pilot. All right, let me go to Ryan. Ryan. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi. Uh, for that pup, no external source would be the heart? No, the, the heart certainly has to have a source of energy, and it uh, gets it from the food that we eat, right? Oh, that... I forgot about the biological chemistry. You're absolutely right. right. Uh, can okay, I... so we're, yeah. Can I ask you a Go question? ahead. In yeah. the Doppler effect, when the sound comes at you, it's compressed. When it's going away from you, it gets wider. But how do you know the original frequency? When you ask him about the Doppler effect? Yes. So what, what do you mean, how do you know the original frequency? Like uh, when, the, when the frequency comes at you, when the object comes right. at you, the frequency is compressed. It gets a higher pitch. When it goes right. away from you, it gets smaller. It gets wider. Right. So, but what, oh, how, how do you know the original frequency? Well, you'd have to measure it at the source. But yeah, I think it can. I I think it can also be calculated by knowing the distance from the source and knowing the medium through which it travels. Okay, the reason I'm saying this is because out in space they'll say how far something is by measuring the red light. How do you know it's the red light they're actually measuring? That's the trouble. By measuring red light. Okay. Well, uh, I'm not sure what you mean by measuring distance. You, what do you mean by measuring this distance of what? Well, like we're planet Earth, and another planet is like two, five, ten, fifty light years away, and right. they're saying that it's moving in this direction or that direction, towards us or away from us, and they're using the red light as a reference point. But how do you know it's the red light directly referencing to? I guess I'm not mm -hmm. asking it correctly. I, I think I'm getting around to what you mean. Is how, how do they use light years to measure? How do you know how many light years? It is. How, how do you how, how do you convert that to actual distance? Or, yeah, whether it's coming at you or going away from you, the object is moving right, away. Right, 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 right. Interesting question. Let me, let me ponder that, and if I, I'll ask some of my physicist colleagues. Well, I thank you very much for your patience. Okay. Yeah, I see your point. Yeah. Okay. All right, um, Jean Pierre. Uh, I just want to know, you said that you, you could produce oxygen to a certain process. Is, there, is that process electrolysis? You can produce it through electrolysis for sure, but that would be a very expensive way to, to produce it commercially. You can it's do that in the laboratory. You, you can do that, uh, you know, in, in the space station or yeah. in a space capsule, but you can't, you can't produce huge amounts of oxygen by electrolysis. It would take too much power to do that. Okay. So the question is, how how else can you produce large amounts of oxygen as are needed in hospitals? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, someone else I, I think will probably Thank know. You. Okay, thanks. Uh, let me uh, replace the question that, uh, uh, well, I guess it hasn't been answered yet anyway. Let, let me give you another uh, interesting question anyway. Uh, what is the largest animal that is alive today? What is the largest animal that is alive today? Okay, so uh, I've got that out there. I still want to know how you produce oxygen, and I want to know who was this skeptical uh, chemist. All right, let me. Uh, okay, yeah, I've got to make a. I said a silly thing uh, when I was talking about how you age uh, the ginkgo biloba tree. How you know how old it is, and I said it's done by radiocarbon dating. No, that cannot be true. If it's 200 million years, you cannot do radio 
uh, carbon dating because uh, uh, the the half-life of carbon-14 is, is too short in order to, to, to do that. Uh, so uh, when they date those kind of things, uh, I, I think they they do that by knowing by comparing it to fossils that that are found. Uh, anyway, certainly uh, the estimate is that ginkgo biloba trees are the oldest uh, trees, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll look into exactly how they would uh, connect it to the fossil record and, and how how you would. Uh, know exactly the 200 million. Anyway, I wasn't there when the first uh, ginkgo biloba trees were uh, planted or how they uh, they evolved. But I've certainly been there when they dropped their fleshy pods and uh, I've smelled the butyric acid. Let me tell you a, a little story about that, but you got to promise not to tell anyone because it's not very nice. Uh, when I was um, an undergraduate student, which goes back a few years, uh, there was a kid in the class uh, who uh, we didn't like all that much because he would constantly be asking annoying questions to the prof to kind of show how smart he was. And uh, we decided one day that we we're going to teach him a lesson. Uh we knew, of course, being chemistry students, that uh, butyric acid was an extremely, extremely smelly substance. And uh, we contrived to put a drop of this uh, into his boot. Uh, we knew where his locker was. He shared the locker with uh, another student. Uh, so we knew the combination. The other student was, of course, privy to this little scheme because he was also annoyed at the subject. And we put a drop of uh, butyric acid in his boots. And the idea, of course, was that would kind of label him as as, as stinky. Uh, we didn't realize just how effective <laughs> this would be. Uh, for those of you who have uh, graduated from McGill or are McGill students, you'll be familiar with uh, Leacock 132, which is our largest uh, auditorium. It holds 630 students. And uh, in those days... Uh, uh, the chemistry course, uh, the general chemistry course was given in, in that room, uh, as was uh, the uh, introductory literature course. In those days, uh, everyone had to take uh, literature, which was a very good idea. Uh, it was compulsory. And it was uh, history of English literature, starting all the way from Chaucer. We did all the Shakespeare plays. We did Dickens. It was It was a great course. So anyway, it was just before that class that we put the uh, drop of butyric acid into the guy's shoe. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of uh, got to the class just a few minutes uh, late, and I looked to see where he was sitting because uh, he would usually sit in the same seat. And there he was, but the seats around him were empty. And uh, so were the couple of seats in the row before and the row behind him. So that demonstrated the, the pungent power of butyric acid. I've never forgotten that uh, mischievous little um, experiment and how it repelled people. And that's exactly the smell that you get from the crushed uh, fruit of the ginkgo biloba tree, although it really shouldn't be called a fruit. It's a pod or a cone. All right, we've got to take a little bit of a break here. We'll check traffic and be right back. 
science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. I had a comment. Uh via text uh, asking why I didn't mention that ginkgo biloba can alleviate the symptoms of tinnitus. I didn't mention that because I know that there's a lot of talk about that on the internet, but I don't think that this is scientifically valid. I've discussed that issue with a number of ear, nose, and throat physicians because I know that this thing has been going around, that uh, ginkgo biloba is a treatment for tinnitus. Tinnitus is a very disturbing condition of ringing in the ear. And uh, there is really just no documented evidence that the ginkgo biloba uh, is the solution to uh, to that problem. All right, so I'm still looking for answers. Uh, I think we got William. Do we have William? Hello. Yes. Good afternoon, doctor. Hi. Okay. The uh, the oxygen is produced by uh, fractional distillation of liquid air. Okay. So how do you actually do that? Well, you cool down. You cool down the air to be, to become a liquid. And then you just distill it. How, how do you cool down the air to become a liquid? Well, they use they use compressors and whatever, and uh, you know refrigeration systems. You compress the air exactly when you take a gas and you compress it; it becomes a liquid. Yeah, so and you then you liquid. cool it down. You you remove the heat, and then it turns into a liquid. It turns into a liquid, and then what do you do? Then you start uh, heating it up uh, uh, with certain because. All the uh, all the um, uh, gases uh, evaporate at a different rate. Exactly, uh, oxygen and uh, nitrogen have different boiling points. That's right. So once you once you have liquid air, you can just separate the two by yeah. uh, distillation because of the difference in boiling point. Yeah. And of course, you can also separate out argon, which is the other gas that is present yeah. in the uh, in I the atmosphere. I have a question. Isn't there also a semi-permeable membrane that you can use to... Yes, there is. Now, this is... Yes, that's a different system. Uh, This is the kind of thing that is used by people who have oxygen at home. Uh, Sometimes you'll see people carrying around this, you know, it looks like a large purse, which generates oxygen. Uh, And this is a completely different system. Uh, This uses uh, air. It sucks in air. And uh, it is uh, equipped with uh, uh, what is called a molecular sieve. And this is a, a material called uh, a zeolite. It's an aluminum silicate. And it absorbs nitrogen. So as the air passes through it, it absorbs the nitrogen and leaves the oxygen to be in- inhaled. Why and don't the, they use this in India? Uh, it, it is uh, not usable on a large scale. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, although, I mean, some some hospitals do have uh, uh, generators of oxygen that work on this principle, uh, but it can't produce enough oxygen to to meet the demand that you're looking at uh, at there. Uh, so, you have to rely on the fractional distillation of um, of liquid air. A, a total different subject. The, the gentleman who called earlier about the redshift, I think yeah. he was talking about the uh, uh, the. Um, uh, redshift in the in the galaxy, you know, from you know from the uh, movement of the uh, stars. Yes, well, well, I think he was asking how you use the redshift to determine distance. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not sure. I have to I have to look uh, look into that. 
Uh, anyway, I, um, uh, another text here about the fossil record, uh, the science of geology, uh, in the sense that fossils identified by paleontologists occur in given sedimentary rocks. Okay, geologists have carefully developed a correlation and time relation between rock formations. Okay, so that okay, so because they know the age of rocks, that's how they've been able to to uh, determine the age of uh, uh, fossils that are embedded in the in the rock. So fossils of ginkgo embedded in the rock uh, have been determined. Uh, the age has been determined like that, I, I guess. Anyway, that's uh, interesting science. All right. I think we also have Mike on the line. Do we? No. Okay. Uh, all right. So we answered the question about oxygen. I actually had an answer texted in about the, uh, the largest animal, and uh, it is correct. The largest animal alive today is the blue whale. And that is some impressive creature. Uh, the largest ones recorded are over 130,000 kilos. You know what that is uh, in terms of, of humans? That's roughly the equivalent of 1,600 people. Or if you want it in terms of elephants, it's about 32 elephants. That's one large animal. Uh, so large, if you take an African elephant, which is the, the largest land mammal, that African elephant would fit on the tongue of the blue whale. That's just an amazing uh, uh, creature. And uh, I'm st so I'm still looking for the answer to my question about what machine operates without an external power source. And uh, I still want to know who was the skeptical chemist who is also regarded to be the father of, uh, of chemistry. Okay, uh, another uh, uh, interesting question that was asked uh, by text about peanut butter. And the all-natural version of peanut butter uh, contains no added sugar, no added salt, which, of course, is, is a good thing. And uh, the trouble with that natural peanut butter is that it separates uh, into uh, an oil and, and a solid. And the question is, what do they use in regular peanut butter that keeps it from separating? And, um, of course, what is used there is what we refer to as emulsifier. An emulsifier is a molecule, one end of which dissolves in moisture, the other end dissolves in, in fatty material. And uh, a classic emulsifier would be lecithin. That's what you find in egg yolk. So when you make a salad dressing at home and you take oil and vinegar, which of course do not mix, but if you put in a little bit of uh, egg yolk uh, and you shake it up, uh, the oil and the vinegar will not separate because the lecithin essentially ties them together. Uh, some peanut butters use lecithin as an emulsifier, but most of them use mono or diglycerides. And again, uh, these are, are molecules where the glyceride end uh, of it uh, dissolves in, in, in fat and the, uh, uh, the glycerol end of the molecule uh, dissolves in uh, aqueous uh, substances, so that in, in water. Uh, there's uh, no problem with using emulsifiers as additives. Of course, they, they are widely uh, uh, studied and, and uh, are safely used. All right, that is it. We have run out of time. You learned something about oxygen today. You learned something about the giant whale. 
you have not yet learned anything about what machine operates without an external source of power, hopefully we'll find out next week, which is exactly the time that we'll be back with you. Same time, same station. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>